Hello, my name is Kevin Riordan, and I'm a military legal officer with the New Zealand Defence Force. I'm also an adjunct lecturer in law at Victoria University of Wellington. In this lecture, I'm going to outline one of the major aspects of the law of armed conflict, namely prohibition, prohibition of and limitations on the employment of weapons and munitions. This is a field sometimes referred to as the means of warfare. Now, it's sometimes said that the invention of weapons was one of the things that defined mankind. And certainly, with only a very few exceptions, most cultures and civilizations around the world have paid a great deal of attention to developing and acquiring better and better weapons, and often more and more of them. But it was only in the wake of the Industrial Revolution that the dangers inherent in this path started to impact on the consciousness of the leaders of nations. Attempts to limit the deadliness or cruelty of weapons had enjoyed sporadic attention from very early times, but sometimes attempts at limitation disguised other motives, and in any events, most attempts enjoyed no real measure of success. The prohibition on the use of poisoned weapons would probably be one of, be one of the very few constantly accepted norms in this regard. So principles declaring some weapons as too cruel to use may have been derived from antiquity, but it was not until the St. Petersburg Declaration of 1868, which deals with exploding bullets, that the concept of attempting to legally regulate their use came to fruition. But before we examine those developments, we need to define the subject a little. I will be talking about the employment of weapons, which is the field of the law of armed conflict and also of international criminal law. Other speakers have addressed the equally important field of arms control. Now, the two areas of law do intersect to a degree. And my talk concentrates on the qualities and nature of the weapon rather than the way it is used. Standard military rifles that are used throughout the world are presumed to be lawful, but they can be fired into a crowd of civilians. That makes the action of the firer unlawful. It doesn't change the legal nature of the weapon. The modern law of armed conflict essentially addresses two major classes of weapons, so-called conventional weapons on one hand and weapons of mass destruction on the other. The former classification serves only really to identify weapons that are not weapons of mass destruction. The latter class is generally taken to mean nuclear weapons, chemical weapons and biological weapons, and it's in that sense that I will address it in this lecture. For obvious historical reasons, it's convenient to start with the former group, conventional weapons, first. When the leading military powers met in St. Petersburg in 1868 to ban the use of exploding bullets of less than 400 grams in weight, this was a revolutionary development in international law. It could have only been of little more than an academic interest to many armed forces, since exploding bullets were not so very common. The Declaration sets out for the first time, however, a philosophy relating to the proper purposes for which weapons may be designed and made and acquired, which was to remain greatly influential from that day forward. The proper purpose of war, the gathers and states declared, was only to weaken the military forces of the enemy for which purpose it was only necessary to disable the greatest number, greatest possible number of men. Arms which unnecessarily aggravated the suffering of the wounded men, or which rendered their death inevitable, would exceed this requirement, 
and would therefore be, in their words, contrary to the laws of humanity. A bullet which exploded within the human body was just such an armament. Now, the exact terms of this prescription was of course based on the available limits of military technology at the time, so no thought was given to the fact that anti-aircraft weapons would one day need to be developed or employed or anything like that. It was really directed at anti-personnel use. But if that declaration had little practical effect on most armies at that time, the same cannot be said of the prohibition on the use of expanding bullets, which arose in 1899 once again at the instigation of the Russian Tsar. Many armed forces, including those from my own country, were at that time issued with soft-nosed man-killing bullets. These rounds are still colloquially known by the name derived from the arsenal in India where they were first made, dum-dum. The rationale for that round is that whereas troops in traditional set-piece battles could be more or less relied upon to lie down and wait for assistance in the event of any serious bullet wound, the same could not be said of adversaries in warfare at the frontiers of colonial empires. The so-called savagery with which such battles were sometimes conducted remained an excuse for the retention of the round for some time. The impact of the declaration was significant and by the turn of the century the soft-nosed bullets were being removed from the ammunition pouches of soldiers in the field and kept aside only for target practice. The prohibition against such rounds and on altering ammunition to achieve the same effect remains one of the best known rules of the law of armed conflict. It's also one that is one of the most enduring, having significance today just as it did in 1899. However, the apparent simplicity of the prohibition was perceived to produce a difficulty when applied to armed conflict not of an international character. So-called soft-nosed or hollow-point pistol rounds have been used by police forces throughout the world for quite different reasons. They're not prone to over-penetration or ricochet, and thus they reduce the collateral injuries amongst bystanders and they also provide greater stopping power for an officer who may be armed only with a pistol. Now, the factual distinction between law enforcement and non-international armed conflict is sometimes not quite as clear as we would like, and this has probably contributed to the fact that it was not until 2010 that the prohibition against the use of such rounds to aggravate injury in non-international armed conflict was transformed into a war crime enumerated in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And if you're interested in this development, you should read the preambular paragraphs to the resolution amending the Rome Statute. However, I find I have jumped a long way ahead. Back to 1899. The conventions of 1899, in part, were built upon the same sentiment contained in the provisions of the St. Petersburg Declaration. Convention number eight, for example, addressed the use of magnetic sea mines, while Hague regulations specifically banned poisoned weapons in its text. And as we've noted, there were a couple of appended declarations, one dealing with poisonous gas and one dealing with expanding bullets. But it also created a general prohibition on the employment of arms, projectiles or material calculated to cause unnecessary suffering. The language of unnecessary suffering was repeated again eight years later, this time in the regulations of 1907. And since this is an expression that with some variations is going to turn up time and time again in this lecture, I'll make a couple of quick observations about it now. 
The use of any type of weapon or munition against the bodies of human beings will inevitably cause suffering and injury. It will, in many cases, result in death. Such death and injury is, of course, a tragedy in humanitarian terms, which all of the usual, usual euphemisms can't disguise. But it's nevertheless an inevitable feature of armed conflict, and it's not unlawful when directed at combatants and when it's demanded by military necessity. The principle of military necessity allows a force to use the weapons and munitions necessary to bring about the submission of the enemy at the earliest possible moment and with the least possible cost to that force in lives and resources. The law of armed conflict balances this principle against that of humanity in order to prohibit or restrict the use of weapons which cause suffering and damage beyond that required by military necessity. Now, there is no clear-cut definition of the term superfluous injury and unnecessary suffering. The expression uselessly aggravates suffering or the wounding effect is sometimes used to much the same effect. The following features, however, are the ones that I am going to suggest as being indicative of a breach of this principle. Firstly, weapons or munitions which deliberately cause infection of the wound or cause wound shapes that are unusually difficult to suture or heal or employ fragments or projectiles that are difficult to locate or remove from the human body. Secondly, weapons or munitions which are designed to render death inevitable. And thirdly, weapons or munitions that are intended to cause pain beyond that, which is a natural incident of being injured or disabled. Further restrictions on the use of weapons, however, were some time in coming. World War I caused suffering to combatants and civilians alike on an unprecedented scale. This included many thousands of men blinded, disfigured, or otherwise ruined in their body or mind by the effects of poisonous gas. Unlike the declaration applying to expanding bullets, the 1899 Hague Declaration relating to asphyxiating gases had proved completely ineffective in stemming its widespread employment by both sides during the war. The horrors of trench warfare allowed no illusion that this was a gentleman's war, and public revulsion at the injuries caused by gas gave rise to the Geneva Gas Protocol in 1925. Many nations acceded to the protocol with a reservation that it was only binding in respect of enemy who complied with the protocol themselves, and they reserved to themselves the right to use gas in retaliation where the enemy state had used this weapon first. Now, the protocol also banned the use of bacteriological weapons, which I will discuss later. What the gas protocol did not do, however, was ban the production or stockpiling of either of these weapons. And as a result, large stockpiles developed around the world. Now, I should mention that gas was not conceived of at that time as a weapon of mass destruction, an as yet unthought of concept. The mechanisms of delivery were relatively primitive, and as a result, pound for pound, high explosive was the far more deadly substance. The way the law dealt with more sophisticated chemical weapons and their delivery systems is also dealt with further later on in my speech. Despite an attempt to address so-called new weapons of war in 1938, the gas protocol was to be the last development in the law of armed conflict relating to weapons for over half a century. 
And there are many reasons for this, which unfortunately I don't have time to explore in great depth. Unlike the situation in respect to the protection of victims of war, the horrors of World War II produced no substantial treaties relating to the means or methods of warfare. The emergence of the Cold War and its coexistence arms race gave little scope for development in this area. Further developments on the prohibitions and restrictions relating to conventional weapons did not arise until 1977 when the issue was addressed in the first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions. This major restatement of the law did not specifically ban or restrict any particular weapon, but rather it followed the approach used in the Hague Regulations by setting out a series of general principles intended to be applied to all weapons. The protocol built on the language of those regulations in order to prescribe the use of weapons or munitions which are of a nature to cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering. Also banned were weapons and munitions that are indiscriminate in their effect. That is to say, weapons which cannot be directed at a specifically specific military objective or can't be limited as required by the law of armed conflict. Lastly, the protocol banned weapons intended or likely to cause widespread, long-term and severe damage to the natural environment. And importantly, the protocol also required parties to assess each new weapon that it sought to develop or acquire in order to ensure that its employment would not be prohibited by international law. Now, the application of the principles set out in these provisions to the banning of any particular weapon has seldom proved to be quite as productive as was hoped. States have consistently demonstrated that they will only prohibit or restrict the use of a particular weapon when it's dealt with specifically in a treaty, rather than by general application of the principle. And it's perhaps for this very reason that the general weapons provision of the Rome Statute, which is Article 82b20, although setting out the grounds for the prohibition in the classical formula of prohibiting superfluous injury and indiscriminacy, provides that such use will be a crime within the jurisdiction of the court only where the weapon is the subject of comprehensive prohibition and is listed in an annex to the statute. There is no such annex in existence. Interestingly, protection of the natural environment is dealt with only in the methods of warfare provision. Following on from the Geneva Protocols was a series of diplomatic conferences under the umbrella of the 1981 United Nations Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, which established prohibitions and restrictions on the use of a number of weapons. The Convention has three original protocols attached to it. Protocol 1 prohibits the use of weapons that injure by the use of fragments not detectable by X-rays. I always think that this very simply worded prohibition exemplifies the humanitarian basis of the ban of weapons that causes unnecessary suffering and superfluous injury. Although it is true that such fragments will place a greater burden on the medical resources of an opposing force, it's also clear that the suffering caused to the victim is almost certain to be vastly out of proportion to the military advantage likely to be derived by doing so. Such fragments might remain in the body long after the conflict has ceased, causing pain and suffering years or even decades after the injury has been inflicted. Protocol 2 was another important provision, and it imposes prohibitions and limitations on the use of mines, 
booby traps and the intriguingly named other devices, a term of art which means devices such as roadside bombs, which of course have become a weapon of choice for insurgents throughout the world, particularly in the first part of the century. Now I'll just make a, uh, an observation about Protocol 2. It was subject to a review in 1996 because there was a degree of dissatisfaction, so I will deal with the two conventions together. They deal with a number of prohibitions and limitations on the use of mines, both anti-personnel and those that are known as mines other than anti-personnel mines. They deal with booby traps, which are seemingly harmless objects set to explode or to kill or injure the user. Restrictions in that regard produced humanitarian answers, for example prohibiting the making of booby traps in the shape of children's toys. Also included were protections of civilians and indeed of United Nations peacekeepers in the course of their operations. But the thrust of the protocol was towards devices and, and mechanisms such as mapping and marking and notices, detectability, self-destruction and removal. It wasn't intended to bring about a complete prohibition on these weapons. Now as I've mentioned, dissatisfaction with the ambit of the limitations led to a review of the protocol in 1996 where further provisions were adopted to minimise the risk to civilians posed by mines and these other weapons and to provide for the clearing of minefields at the end of hostilities. A ban on mines designed to detonate when a mine detector is used was included, as was a duty where possible to give the civilian population warning when mines are employed. Additional restrictions were placed on the use of anti-personnel mines and set standards for self-destruction and self-deactivation and rules established for the marking of areas in which they have been used. The review fell short, however, of imposing a complete ban on the use of anti-personnel mines sought by many in civil society. Protocol 3 imposes prohibitions and limitations on the use of incendiary weapons, again for the protection of the civilian population, but does not absolutely prescribe their use against military objects. They are, however, subject to the fundamental rule that when such weapons are used against a military objective, precautions must be taken to protect the civilian population and the environment. Using air-delivered incendiaries against a military headquarters in the middle of a town, for example, is prohibited. The deliberate use of incendiary weapons such as flamethrowers against enemy combatants, with the intention of causing them burn injuries, is likely to cause horrific injury and pain. Although it's not specifically banned, the anti-personnel use of such weapons is likely to be considered in most circumstances causative of superfluous injury and unnecessary suffering and would therefore be unlawful on that basis, unless of course there is a clear military necessity for such use which would outweigh that concern. Use of such weapons is therefore generally reserved for objectives such as bunkers where their military necessity is more clearly obvious. In 1995, Protocol 4 prohibited the use and transfer of a newly developing type of weapon, and one which had not yet found its way onto the battlefield, namely the blinding laser weapon. This is a weapon which, as quickly as I can move my hand across the screen, can render all who are facing it totally, 
permanently, irreversibly blind. The prohibition appealed to all who had the imagination to conceive of the suffering and terror such a weapon could cause. Although, whether its injuries were different in substance from many other horrific wounds caused by other weapons is a debate left to one side. Now, at this point, I should mention the fact that weapons provisions were, up to this point, principally directed towards international armed conflict. The provisions of Geneva Protocol 1 never made their way into Protocol 2. And initially, the provisions of the Conventional Weapons Convention did not specifically apply to non-international armed conflict either. In 2001, the scope of application of the Convention and its annexed protocols was extended to include armed conflict not of an international character, and subsequent treaties referred to below make no such demarcations between the two types of, of armed conflict. This path has, however, only so far been partially followed in respect to the Rome Statute, a point I will return to later. The application of the fundamental rules relating to weapons to non-international armed conflict is now commonly asserted to be part of customary international law, which, as we know, is derived from the practice of states in accordance with a sense of legal obligation. And state practice in this regard is not easy to isolate. However, I do not doubt that the development of norms in this direction, and I am reminded in particular of the oft-quoted expression, what is inhumane and consequently prescribed in international wars cannot but be inhumane and inadmissible in civil strife. In 2003, a further protocol to the Conventional Weapons Convention was added, dealing with the deadly legacy of war, namely explosive remnants of war. In many battlefields, weapons that have been used and haven't functioned or have been left behind cause as many casualties after the event as those that have been deliberately laid. So unlike the earlier protocols, this instrument didn't set out to ban or restrict a weapon per se, but rather set out responsibilities on the parts of parties to a conflict to take steps to reduce the incidence of unexploded or abandoned ordnance, and to protect the civilian population through marking, mapping and destruction of such ordnance. Now, as noted above, the consensus-based program of the Conventional Weapons Convention did not provide the total ban on anti-personnel mines sought by a number of very active civil society interest groups and by a number of states. These went on to achieve a total ban through the Ottawa Convention on the basis that these weapons kill or maim hundreds of people, mostly civilians and especially children. They obstruct economic development and reconstruction and they inhibit the repatriation of refugees and internally displaced persons. And most importantly, they have other severe consequences for years after emplacement. Now, if I could add a personal uh, observation in this regard, one of the operations in peacekeeping in which I was involved early in my career, I was required to go and visit a small village where a small child had been killed by an anti-personnel mine. This mine was a jumping jack mine, which, as the name suggests, is designed to leap out of the ground to about chest height before it explodes. The little girl had been buried by the time I arrived there, but I was required to gather some of the fragments of the weapon and take it back for analysis, which revealed that the weapon had in fact been made in the 1950s and had probably been laid at about the same stage 
which therefore meant it had sat in the ground waiting for an innocent person to step on it for over 40 years. Now, anti-personnel mines are designed to be placed under, on or near the ground or other surface area and to be exploded by the presence and proximity or contact of a person. Parties to the Ottawa Convention resolved that they must not use, develop, produce, acquire, stockpile, retain or transfer anti-personnel mines. Those that are in a position to do so must provide assistance for mine clearance and related activities. A similar path was taken in respect of cluster munitions in the so-called Oslo process. Humanitarian concerns regarding cluster munitions arise mainly from the ease with which they can be used to indiscriminately strike combatants and civilians alike, and their propensity to leave large numbers of unexploded bomblets, which detonate easily, persist for many years after use, and take a very high toll amongst civilians. The fact that many of the bomblets are brightly coloured and resemble toys has meant that the toll is particularly high amongst children. The definition of cluster munition in the Cluster Munitions Convention is widely set and covers the relatively unsophisticated cluster munitions, such as the type that were dropped in their millions in Southeast Asia in the 1970s, through to the more modern weapons which have self-destruction and self-deactivation mechanisms and a high reliability in theory, but a high failure rate in practice. Excluded from the definition are submunitions that are designed to sense and destroy armoured vehicles, for example, without creating the wide area anti-personnel effect. Because of their size and the number of submunitions deployed, sometimes as few as two. The Cluster Munitions Convention requires parties to separate out and destroy stockpiles of cluster munitions. It also contains unusually detailed provisions relating to interoperability in coalitions between states that are party to the Convention and those that are not. And this recognises the fact that a number of significant military powers have indicated that they do not intend to stop using cluster munitions in the immediate future. Article 21 strikes an effective balance between the humanitarian desire to ban cluster munitions comprehensively and the need of nations to cooperate fully in international security arrangements. However, parties must encourage non-parties to join the Convention with the goal of attracting adherence of all states to the Convention. Parties must also notify such states of their own obligations under the Convention and to promote its norms and make best efforts to discourage non-parties from using cluster munitions. And once again, parties that are in a position to do so must provide assistance for clearance and destruction activities. States must also take steps to clear and destroy cluster munition remnants in areas within that state's control or jurisdiction. And these obligations overlap with the obligations in respect of explosive remnants of war set out in the Conventional Weapons Convention, which I mentioned earlier. I'll now turn to weapons of mass destruction. The expression weapon of mass destruction is taken to mean nuclear, biological and chemical weapons. However, logically, the expression must also apply to any weapon which is intended to cause or is of a nature to bring about widespread and indiscriminate destruction and loss of life, regardless of how that effect is actually created. The most ancient of the weapons of mass destruction was commonly used long before its protagonists even knew how it worked. 
The practice of catapulting typhoid and plague-ridden corpses into besieged towns, for example, was a use of bacteriological warfare which preceded the understanding of bacteria by some centuries. That this practice was indiscriminate and somewhat prone to backfire um, added to the disdain with which it was held even when its use was primitive and inefficient. By 1925, however, scientific production and widespread delivery of the most deadly biological toxins was becoming a reality. The fear that employment of such weapons would produce uncontrollable epidemics, bringing widespread death and misery, resulted in its use being specifically banned in the 1925 gas protocol. In 1971, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a convention banning the development, and production and stockpiling of bacteriological, biological and toxin weapons. The treaty also provides for the destruction of existing stocks as well as establishing a reporting mechanism to ensure compliance. Prohibition has not, however, found its way into the crimes enumerated in the Rome Statute, a surprising result coming out of the negotiating history of that treaty, and perhaps a victim of the inability of the conference to deal with nuclear weapons specifically. In respect of chemical weapons, progress was not as fast as it was in respect of biological ones. It was not until 1993 that a convention prohibiting the development, production, stockpiling and use of chemical weapons was opened for signature. The Chemical Weapons Convention prohibits both the chemical and the delivery system. Also banned was the use of riot control agents as a method of warfare, a provision which is sometimes exposed to criticism since the use of tear gas grenades seems at first glance far more humane than that of high explosive ones. The fact remains, however, that the use of gas is an easy conduit to chemical weapons, and as a result the prohibition is simple and explicit. It's not generally thought to apply to law enforcement even in wartime or operations such as hostage rescue. Now, the word chemical weapon is not used in the Rome Statute, but use of poisonous and asphyxiating gas and all analogous liquids and materials and devices, the language out of the 1925 protocol, was included as a war crime in respect of international armed conflict. Whether this in reality creates a gap that could be exploited so as to allow someone to escape liability for such use is, let us hope, something the court will never have to deal with. As was the case in respect of expanding bullets, however, the use of these weapons in non-international armed conflict was not criminalised until 2010. Which leads us to nuclear weapons. Many commentators consider that nuclear weapons offend against the customary rules of international law on the grounds that they breach all three of the classic prohibitions which have been set out in this lecture, namely unnecessary suffering or superfluous injury, that they are inherently indiscriminate and that they cause widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural environment. Contrary voices say that they are not necessarily inherently indiscriminate and they point to exceptions such as small nuclear weapons or nuclear depth charges. However, the former position holds that international humanitarian law bears on the threat or use of nuclear weapons just as it does to all other weapons. International humanitarian law has evolved to meet contemporary circumstances. It's not limited in its application to weaponry of an earlier time. The fundamental principles of this law endure, and they are there to mitigate and circumscribe the cruelty of war 
for humanitarian purposes. Other states have persistently objected to this interpretation of international law, as is demonstrated by some of the reservations to Additional Protocol 1 and declaratory statements on the ratifying of the Rome Statute. Under international law, the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons is generally unlawful. However, the International Court of Justice found itself unable to state that the use of nuclear weapons would be unlawful in, ex in an extreme case of self-defence, where the survival of the state itself is at stake. The use of nuclear weapons is another provision which did not make its way into the U Rome Statute. Many states consider that any such use could be dealt with under the more general provisions relating to disproportionate attacks and attacks on the environment. Other states are adamant, however, that this is not the case. Once again, let us hope that the correct position never has to be decided upon by a court. Because this is a very general overview, I will have to leave my discussion of nuclear weapons there, but I have no doubt that others will pick up the subject and dedicate to it the attention it deserves. I should mention before passing that there are other international law treaties limiting the deployment of such weapons, for example, in space, on the moon, or on the seabed. I'll now turn to my conclusion. If from this presentation you've come to the conclusion that the process by which weapons and munitions have come to be banned or restricted under international law is a slow one, beset by inconsistencies and contradictions, then you probably have a reasonably good grasp of what I've said. However, that's not the case if you've decided that the process is an ineffective one or that it is pointless. To take but one example, civilian deaths through anti-personnel mines use has plummeted since the coming into force of the Ottawa Convention. And even some states that are not parties to some of these conventions have very wisely taken advantage of the reasoning behind them to desist from the use of certain weapons, even though they're under no legal obligation to do so. The exact bounds of customary international law in this area is uncertain, and this is at least in part because of the paucity of case law in respect of it. Cases in which persons have been tried for the use of prescribed weapons are few and far between, although the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia has at least provided some clarity on the issue of indiscriminacy. There are some propositions which can, however, safely be asserted. The means of warfare are not unlimited. All may still be fair in love, but all is not fair in war. Weapons which are unnecessarily cruel, which cannot be limited in their effect, or which are of a nature to damage the environment in a serious and widespread and long-lasting way, are not to be used. Weapons which have demonstrably failed the test of the balance between military necessity and humanity have been by and large banned or restricted. Weapons that are not currently banned may become so when changes to technology and the methods of warfare cause the utility of those weapons to recede. To ban a weapon means that the balancing act between these two principles of humanity and military necessity is no longer available to the soldier on the ground. The weapon in question cannot therefore be used even if the military situation seems to demand it. It might not be used, one might even contemplate, at the cost of the soldier's own life. And in case you are wondering, that is part of the reason why the rush to ban particular weapons meets resistance on occasion. All people who are called upon to use weapons in the defence of their state, their ideals, 
in their way of life must hope that in doing so they are doing the right thing and that they are following the law. They trust these weapons to protect them, and this may result in devastating force being unleashed upon the enemy. All such people have the right to expect that in using weapons that they have been supplied with in order to defeat barbarism, they are not themselves the agents of barbarity. Thank you for your attention.